Welcome back to The Late Set. My name is Nate Chenin. I am Greg Bryant. We are so glad that you are joining us. We've got a very special bonus episode for you today. Uh, The last time that we were in your podcast feed, we were doing a centennial tribute to the one and only Max Roach. And we've got another centennial for you here today. It's a little different, though. (laughs) That's right. Whose Rhapsody is it anyway? Or (laughs) our celebration of George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. It turns 100 this year. It's actually, we're dropping this episode on the on the date of its premiere, February 12th, 1924. And I want to say that the music you heard coming in to the show was by our guest this episode, the wonderful pianist Marcus Roberts. Yeah. Stay tuned for that, folks. It's going to be a great, great time, a great conversation. Now, I have a confession to make. Um, I actually kind of love this piece. That's okay, man. (laughs) Uh, In fact, even in those terrible moments when I'm sitting on a United Airlines flight buckling in and getting ready for a long trip (laughs) and uh, and you hear that clarinet Uh, trill and, you know, those strings swooping in like, you know, I I am not mad at that music, even in that moment. And and that orchestration in the United stuff is kind of corny, but Mm -hmm. I think it's a beautiful uh the melodic content of rhapsody in blue mm-hmm. it never fails to uh to enrapture me right um do you feel the same way like do you have any fondness for the piece as a piece of music you know what to be honest with you aside from the familiarity of those uh, trills that you mentioned before um rhapsody in blue is not um a central or critical uh, piece of my, you know, classic or current listening experience. Of course, I've heard it. I've seen it performed live by the gentleman who we're going to talk to a bit later on. But I think that I have to pause here to say that George Gershwin is important. And he did put a lot on the line as a Jewish American composer in the 1920s mm-hmm. to put the spotlight for the first time, perhaps, on the black American experience, although uh, black people were largely away from the gate or shut out of the mainstream, Mm -hmm. Gershwin did take a chance at a critical time in American history to say, hey, black history is important, even if he had to borrow from its root source. Right. It's interesting to think of him as, I mean, I think there's no doubt that George Gershwin loved black music, Mm -hmm. but by our contemporary yardstick, I think it would be complicated to argue for his role as an ally, hmm. right? Because he did accept the the honors and he didn't necessarily share them Very or, or true. acknowledge his sources. Right? That's a really important point. And this speaks to a point that Ethan Iverson, the um, pianist and composer, formerly with the Bad Plus, now, now a Blue Note artist, mm-hmm. he had a, an op- op-ed in the New York Times recently, and uh, there's a good chance that you've read it or, or seen some of the discourse, some of the argument it inspired. Um, This piece uh, bears the fairly trollish headline, The Worst Masterpiece, Rhapsody in Blue at 100. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the headline actually is Ethan's. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm going to read a paragraph that kind of calls up the, uh, the, the main thesis of this piece. And it has to do not only with what we've been talking about, but also the way in which this piece has existed over the last century Mm -hmm. within the classical establishment, right? Right. Um, So this is Ethan Iverson. 
If Rhapsody in Blue is a masterpiece, it might be the worst masterpiece. The promise of a true fusion on the concert stage basically starts and ends with it. A hundred years later, most popular black music is separate from the world of formal composition, while most American concert musicians can't relate to a score with a folkloric attitude, let alone swing. Hmm. What do you make of that? It's wrong to judge a classical musician by an improvisational standard. I don't think necessarily that it's right to say that every musician must be equipped to do all the things. I also would be careful in, while I agree with Ethan Iverson, I think that hindsight and history makes it easier to make a commentary like this. Mm. And also, he does put the spotlight on where it needs to be. There's nothing wrong with being a feeder band or a gateway drug. You need to point back to the original source. Mm. But after that, what are you doing to make sure that that person that you're pointing to has any level of mobility? Mm. Mm. Wow. That is, uh, you just dropped some, some really valuable information there. That's, that's something that I think we, we need to consider. Um, because, first of all, there is the expectation that we have of our musicians and, you know, the fact that classical and orchestral musicians do come out of a different uh, tradition and lineage and language, right? right? Um, I think it's interesting. I mean, I will push back on Ethan's argument a, a bit in that I have seen evidence of of a gradual kind of warming to, to this idea. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's it's definitely a point worth making that for far too long, symphony orchestras, when thinking about their programming, and they're they're like, well, you know, we've got Mozart and we've got Haydn and we've got you know Bruckner and Mahler, okay, and we'll we'll put Gershwin in there, we'll put Rhapsody in Blue, and then you know th- then then we've checked the box, right? Mm-hmm. Like th- then we've got our jazz quotient <laughs> in the season, and uh, and that's not good enough, you know. On the other hand. In the right hands, I do believe that there is still something to be gleaned from this piece, you know, there's, and there's still beauty in it. And some of that has to do with what you alluded to, right? The, the source material, mm-hmm. the information. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's where we get to our, our guest today. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, Marcus Roberts is a brilliant pianist, someone that I know you and I First heard probably in the early '90s, maybe yeah. maybe late '80s, mm-hmm. late 1980s, mm-hmm. in the in the orbit of Wynton Marsalis. Marcus was the first winner of the Thelonious Monk Jazz Piano Competition, and you know, just a, an incredible improviser and a deep, deep wellspring of information. Yeah, you know, and and soul and perspective. And last month, Marcus came with his trio, which includes Jason Marsalis mm-hmm. on drums, came to Philadelphia to perform the Rhapsody with the Philadelphia Orchestra. Uh, they played three nights, and Yannick Nézé-Séguin, the conductor and music director of the orchestra, really welcomed their perspective. The trio was front and center on stage, and I think you could argue that the conductor really was, you know, it was either Marcus or Jason yeah. <laughs> you know, during yeah. the performance of the piece. Um, I think the the orchestra and and Yannick understand that they can't get to that truly authoritative rhythmic uh, you know place 
as symphonic musicians, mm-hmm. but they can trust and they can follow, you yeah. know, and, um, Marcus and, and Jason have been doing this with orchestras long enough to understand how not to clash with them, how to, how to integrate and, and lead, you know? And, and so the concert was truly stunning. I mean, I, I was, I was blown away and a lot of it had to do with what Marcus brought to his improvised interludes and, and the cadenzas because he did stuff that was related to the Rhapsody, but like so gritty and soulful and like, and also like elevated, you know, it was like everything that you could possibly want out of a performance like that. Uh, which could make the argument for it is about the material. There's a lot left out. So with someone like Marcus Roberts, um, who you've so eloquently uh, given uh, his flowers, not only is he the right musician, but he has the right source to be able to comment on. I've seen these uh, classical jazz fusions, for lack of a better terminology, mm-hmm. fall flat. Yeah. They disappoint on both sides of the genre spectrum. But I've also seen Marcus interpret this work with Jason on drums, and the first thought I had was, wow, seamless. Do I really want to go back and investigate the original? Maybe not, because I prefer this version, but if there had been no original, mm. would we have this brilliance? He, he brings it alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he, he imbues it with a living spirit. Yep. Um, and he does that restorative work that we've been sort of alluding to, right? So, yep. so Gershwin was making these illusions. He was drawing from a certain, um, a certain soil. And Marcus knows how to plunge his hands into that soil and sift through it and sort of bring it to light. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But, you know, I, I want to make another point here, and, and I, I'll do so um, by way of a, a little story. Now, Greg, this is a true story. Okay. okay. All right. On the night that I went to go see Marcus's trio with the Philadelphia Orchestra, the clock was ticking. I was, had to get dinner on the table and, you know, have dinner with my family before dashing out the door. Yeah. Um, and so as I was getting dinner ready... I thought to myself, um, you know, I want to put some, put something on the turntable and I'll just have it on. And I'm about to see Rhapsody in Blue, so I want to hear something very different, right? So I picked this album, Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers with Thelonious Monk, this album hmm. on Atlantic Records. Yeah. I happen to have a, uh, a, a new 180-gram uh, vinyl reissue of this thing. Stop so showing I wanted, off, man. I wanted She's to hear how it sounded. Now. Okay. Well, Greg, listen to this, man. Uh-huh. Uh, as I'm, like, tucking into my dinner and looking at the time, I hear Blue Monk, and the tenor saxophonist on this album is Johnny Griffin. I want to play you a little bit. This is the end of his first chorus into the beginning of his second chorus on Blue Monk. All right. I mean, come it's, on now. It's as synonymous as Carmen. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that was, it was like a little lightning bolt, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, because I'm, I'm sitting here thinking like, all right, I'm about to go have this concert experience. And, you know, but when we talk about Rhapsody in Blue, you, you have to talk about it as like, it's like Shakespeare in a certain way. It is. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This is part of the part of the bedrock of musical understanding for the 20th century. You know, Johnny Griffin, it, you know, it's, I'm sure he, there was nothing premeditated about that quote. No. You know, it was just there. Part of he's, his fiber, you know, man. He's, he, yeah. he, 
he was starting to hit that uh, that note, and it just like led him there. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I love that. You know, because and Gershwin, of course, right? I got rhythm. Yeah. Know? Oh, yeah. So much, so much of the language uh, and the literature of jazz comes out of his pen. It does. You know, it does. I feel like um, we can complicate the legacy of this thing. It can withstand that. You know, we can question it, but the story is so enmeshed, you know, like jazz and Rhapsody in Blue came up together. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a hundred years of, of an entanglement that I think we can, we can really learn from. True. So we had Marcus Roberts here in the studio at WRTI. He had sound checked and rehearsed with the, the orchestra that morning and uh, sat down at our, our Steinway. And I had a really lovely conversation with him that that you all are about to hear. Let's get a taste of Marcus playing the Rhapsody on our piano at WRTI, and then we'll just go right into my conversation. such a, a pleasure and a privilege to have you in our studio. Um, I know that we are all um, deep listeners to your body of work, and you're here today because you're in town to perform a, a truly great piece of, of music, um, George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue with the Philadelphia Orchestra. Um, and so we are just thrilled that you're here to talk about it with us today. Oh, thank you. No, I'm honored and privileged as well, and I'm so glad that Gershwin wrote that great piece. He he may have suspected that it would be around 100 years later. He he did eventually become very used to having hits. At one point, he said, the hits are just uh, dripping off my fingers, you know, so he <laughs> he was a confident fellow and loved jazz and obviously loved classical music, so yeah, I'm, I'm very glad to be uh, performing this with this fantastic orchestra. As you say, you know, he composed so many pieces that are, you know, in the standard repertoire, including some like I Got Rhythm that right. really form a, a backbone of of the language, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, but Rhapsody in Blue is is really an interesting case because, you know, some pieces of music, you, you can't exactly fix a, a birth date to them. But in this case, there really is a date, right. you know, February right. 12th, 1924, Aeolian um, Hall. Yes, when it was, it had its premiere at Aeolian Hall in New York, um, courtesy of the Paul Whiteman Orchestra. Um, and I know you've done a lot of research around this event and the circumstances. Um, can you tell us a bit about how this piece came to be? Well, the original, my understanding is, he saw an advertisement in the paper saying that he was going to do it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and so I don't know if he freaked out or if he called up Paul Whiteman and said, what are you doing? But he apparently composed it 
in three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at an original score of it, it literally has stuff in it like look at George or, I mean, it's it's truly an improvisatory set of cadenzas that he did for this for this piece. Right. Um, now, did he know it was going to be a masterpiece? Again, I don't know. Now, there's a famous quote by Maurice Ravel who said that the masterpiece has no style. It's the sincerity of the artist that brings it to life. Mm-hmm. So when we think of Rhapsody in Blue, it's almost different in some ways. As many great pieces as Gershwin wrote, obviously the fantastic piano concerto he wrote a following year in 25. And there's an American in Paris. I mean, there's there's all these great works. But Rhapsody in Blue is the one piece that a lot of people just seem to know and like. Mm-hmm. It was a hit. And, and, and I think... I think that people will be wanting to play it a hundred years from now. Yeah. It really was a hit, you know, and, and it was even a hit that night at Aeolian Hall. From what I understand, this was an audience that, you know, by the time Gershwin's piece came up in the concert program, a lot of people were pretty tired and right. you know, they yeah, were right, over, right, yeah. overheated and, right, you know, right. not in a good mood. And, um, and still uh, the piece communicated so clearly that there was a rapturous reception, uh, you know, in that audience. It really is a piano-centric work. Um, oh, yeah. And in fact, you know, in that 1924, you know, the, the original score, um, you know, Gershwin as a pianist, I mean, he really, um, he really based this piece on what was at his fingertips, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and and what, what insights can, can that provide for us in understanding this symphonic work as, you know, sort of first and foremost, a a piece from the piano? Well, the thing about George Gershwin, too, though, his his concept of piano was actually based on, like a lot of jazz musicians, it was really based on his pianistic style, which Mm -hmm. is not necessarily pianistic. I mean, it's hard. A lot of, you know, the things in that piece, if you play it as written, um, so Gershwin knew what he was capable of doing. He knew what he liked to do. And identity is a big part of improvisation. Like you've got to have a concept of what your style is based on and what it's based upon. At the same time, he had a great love for Maurice Ravel's work and for classical music in general. So he was really one of the first ones to literally decide that, let's see if we can bring these two worlds together. And of course, the piano has a central role in European classical music, right? Uh, Mozart wrote, what, 17 or 18 piano concertos. Uh, Beethoven wrote five, the great two Brahms concerti and the, the four Rachmaninoff, etc. So I think in terms of his own style, the, the thing to, to keep in mind with Rhapsody in Blue is the themes are so American, mm. Right. They are soulful. They're based on um, an African-American sensibility in terms of the blues, right? Um, You know, if you look at... uh, You know what I mean? That sounds like something you might... You might hear somebody just play that Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the context of a solo. It's very recognizable, 
right? And of course, there's the heavenly theme in E major. Uh... Etc. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the thing about the piece, there are a lot of great themes. I don't know that he composed it like, okay, I'm going to put this incredible structure behind it or anything. I don't know. I guess it's a rhapsody. You know, this is this is what I'm feeling right now. This right. is what I, this, you know, this is what I want to express right now. And, but I think the rhythm is really what makes it magical. And so when we fast forward a hundred years. Charlie Parker has existed. Um, Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington have matured as great, great artists of our time. You know, Thelonious Monk has been here. John Mm. Coltrane has been here. Um, Aretha Franklin's been here, you know. So all of this great American music that functions around the rhythm section, and that's the other thing, like the rhythm section as we know it now did not exist in 1924, really. Right. So I think that what that allows a person who wants to give it a new look or bring it into the 21st century, uh, it means that we have the benefit now of true jazz group improvisation. So mm-hmm. like when I did it, I I, I used, uh, on the recording I did for Sony Classical, I used a big group. When I do it now, when we do it, with Philadelphia or any orchestra, it's it's mainly now my trio. But what's what's important is that when we play jazz music, it's really important to understand that true compromise is the only way this music works. Like mm-hmm. we have to resolve conflict. We have to resolve, you know, the conflict of resistance and cooperation, right? Or uh, you know, the concept of of individual and collective, right? In other words, Mm -hmm. how do we figure out a way to make room for what everybody's hearing? Keep in mind, too, everybody's hearing different stuff. So the bass player is playing stuff, the drummer, Jason, he's playing stuff. I'm playing things. And somehow we still have to make sure that the people don't get confused and start thinking, what are they playing? Is this still Rhapsody? What's going on? <laughs> right. So the structure of the piece is very important to maintain. And, and it's also important to make sure uh, that when it's time for the orchestra to play, I've got to have a very clear set of cues that let the conductor know, okay, this cadenza's done. We're two measures before rehearsal six, so now you can bring the orchestra back in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that clear communication. And and one thing that strikes me about what you just said is that it's a, it's a real synthesis, right? Yeah. You know, and, and so... In addition to smoothing out, you know, these different perspectives, um, a successful performance of this piece is a real merging of sensibilities where you're not toggling back and forth between, okay, here's the orchestra and here's the trio, you know, like right. a tennis match, yeah. right? It's it's yeah. really much more um, fully integrated. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's organic. In other words, um, I only agreed to do it because I felt like I could bring an authenticity where both styles could be truly manifest in our performance of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I felt very comfortable, uh, you know, with that because the themes are great. 
jazz musicians have always enjoyed improvising on Gershwin's themes because they're they're easy to improvise on. Um, they're not boring, but you know they're they're a little repetitive. You know that there's enough repetition where a musician or an audience person can know what you're playing and how it relates to the structure of the piece. Mm -hmm. um, with jazz music, none of this music is about you by yourself. It's really about you with other people. And if we look at American democracy, like if we look at the cultural framework of our country through the Constitution, right, that's ultimately what the struggle has been. Are we going to be a set of individuals or are we going to have a shared collective belief system that will transform us from just being selfish individuals into being a group of collective people who mm -hmm. care about each other and who want freedom and justice for all people, even people who don't look like you, right. even people who don't believe what you believe, that you're willing to make that room for that. And I think a piece like Rhapsody in Blue encapsulates all of that. Mm. Yeah, <clears throat> that's really beautifully said. Um, and it, it brings me to a, a question I wanted to ask about um, Rhapsody in Blue as black music, so to speak, because mm -hmm. Gershwin obviously had his ear tilted in a particular direction. He was very genuinely interested in the music that, right. you know, that was was already being called jazz. Um, but at the same time, there are some tensions there because, you know, Paul Whiteman got a lot of credit. Um, you know, he was called the king of jazz right, at right. various times. Right, right. Um, and, and, you know, the press, um, one of the one of the glowing reviews after the Aeolian Hall concert was in the New York world. And the critics said that, you know, that this piece had made an honest woman out of jazz, you know? Oh, oh my. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's, uh, there are some, uh, shall we say, problematic undertones there. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about this piece as an expression of black music, even though it was performed, you know, premiered by a, a white orchestra and right. Gershwin is a, a, a Jewish American, you know, mm -hmm. but, but I, there is a, a kind of um, energy in the piece and all of the influences in the piece, you know, seem like a, a, a real homage, you know, trying to, um, as best he could, um, you know, celebrate this right. music. Um, so yeah. what, what are your thoughts yeah. about that? Well, like I say, it's the themes are African American at the root, mm -hmm. you know, because of the blues music that was going on at the time. Uh, these themes are, and of course, the rhythms, right? In other words, when you hear it, you don't think it's German, right? Right. We don't think it's uh, Italian. We, you know, it has a clearly American uh, feeling to it. Uh, I know Gershwin, he ran into James P. Johnson, right, mm -hmm. when he was young. I don't know how much they talked or communicated, but they certainly knew of each other because James P. Johnson, he wrote Yamacraw three years later in answer to Rhapsody in Blue, and he called it a Negro Rhapsody. So, mm -hmm. you know, there was clearly some interaction going on before the first integrated band that Benny Goodman had with Teddy Wilson and Gene Krupa. Um, but my feeling is... When we think of um, black music, whatever that is, I, I just tend to think of it as the expression of 
the experience of black people in the United States after slavery, right? Mm -hmm. When we think of the fact that you couldn't play drums in any city during slavery except New Orleans, right? And that New Orleans would be the city where jazz started and was expanded upon. Mm -hmm. I think what that tells us is that a group of people who were finally free and had what everybody else wanted, or at least in theory, or at least in terms of the legislative process and the war that took place, the Civil War and all that, a generation or two later, they were still dealing with very rough circumstances, right? Yeah. Very difficult circumstances. And so when you deal with that, you have to create an identity or at least a sense of what something that represents who you are would look like if you could have it. And that's what jazz is. Mm. It's a music that establishes, well, first of all, it comes from the people. Like these people weren't kings or queens. They didn't come from a lot of money. They didn't come from a lineage of wealth. They had to describe their wealth based on the music they played, the virtuosity that they could exhibit, the colorful things that they could do that that exhibited their identity. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Charlie Parker, the fact that even they had nicknames like Bird and Count and Duke and, you know. So it was really a search for identity and a search for a sense of regalness in terms of their identity. So I think that Rhapsody in Blue encapsulates that opportunity for us to establish, uh, in the case of my version, a true delving of the piece into the actual jazz environment. Mm, like yeah. it's 100% there. And that's why I, <laughs> I, uh, I tell every conductor when we play this piece, it's different every time. Mm -hmm. It's a new version every time. We don't, we don't play it the same way every time. So that means that it's an authentic representation of jazz music and it's an authentic representation of classical music because, you know, the orchestra is still playing what's on the score. The conductor is still conducting his orchestra based on the, the rules of engagement there. So when you put all that together and it's authentic, then you have an experience, okay, which to me is the key with art. It's not so much about the art, really. Like I can go by myself and play the piano by myself and, and that's fine. But really what matters is when you have an audience and you play music for them, mm -hmm. it's not about the art. It's about the the interaction or the engagement of each person in the audience with the art and what that experience provides them. Right. That's what's magical. That's what's, that's what I think makes any music of value. But in the case of jazz music, we're even influenced by what we hear from the audience. So if people clap or if they scream or whatever they do, it influences what we play. Mm -hmm. And so, Jazz music is really about individuals influencing each other and then adapting to those influences. Yeah. And again, th 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 this is a great piece where we're able to demonstrate that. Gershwin had certain ideas in mind and he was trying to um, evoke um, certain kinds of feelings and sounds. And, and you're able to come in and say, well, he was nodding in this direction. Well, let's follow that. Here's what I think he was trying to evoke. And, and I have a a broader context that I can bring that puts it in, you know, sort of, I can put my hands in that soil, you know, and, and here's what this is and here's how we develop it. You know, it's, it's right. a, it's a really rich way to experience this work. 
Well, thank you. It um, It is a rich way to experience it because, again, the piece is fantastic. People love it. If you play it the way it's been played, everybody has their interpretation of it. But I did want there to be a version of the piece that didn't stick 100% to uh, the rules of engagement. So mm -hmm. I'm going to freely improvise on it. I'm going to freely reinvent the thematic material and use other influences from my childhood, from Earl Garner, from Monk, from the church, from Ravel, from, you know, whatever spontaneously mm -hmm subconsciously comes to mind because when you improvise, think about it. Like when you walk, you don't really think about walking. It's a subconscious activity. Right. You know, when we practice, that's a conscious activity. Like we're, we're specifically practicing whatever it is that we're trying to get together. But the real trick, the real difficulty with jazz improvisation is how do you go from the conscious practice of either transcribing a solo or working on patterns or whatever people do, how do you go from that to a spontaneous subconscious release where the music leads you wherever it leads you and everybody has that trust and empathy uh, of each other on the stage? Mm -hmm. When that happens, I don't even call it communication or at the lowest level, it's self-expression, okay? Like we we express ourselves, right? When we communicate, then of course, we're, we're all paying attention and we're aware, but the top level is communion. And communion just mm -hmm. means that we all feel the same thing in the audience, on the stage. When that happens, I, I call that a, a moment of uh, communion, which I think uh, is key to any significant change in a group of people. Yeah, yeah. And and I love that that, that word, you know, with all of its connotations, I mean, it, it is, um, wildly inclusive, you yes. know, everyone in that space is a part of that communion. You know? Yes. Um, yes. and, and so that, uh, I wanted to bring this up. Um, you, uh, earlier today, you had a rehearsal with the Philadelphia orchestra and, you know, it, it so happens that there is significant, um, historic connection between this orchestra and this piece. Um, because the, the 1945 recording uh, that the orchestra made with Oscar Levant on piano uh, was a huge hit. Um, and it actually contributed to a kind of renaissance in, in mm -hmm. you know, interest in Gershwin. Um, and so it's, it's really um, beautiful that the Philadelphia Orchestra, you know, yeah, has this, has yeah. this landmark 1945. And now <laughs> here they are all these years later with, with you on the piano and your trio. Wow. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's fantastic. You know, it's it's fantastic. It reminds me of a lot of, like, even if you think of any great event in American history that we reference as a a milestone or we reference as some something that's significant, something that's important, whether it's Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech or what, you know what I mean? Anything that the culture decided this is important. Mm -hmm. And Rhapsody in Blue falls in that category. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have any thoughts about, um, you've played, you've played this piece with a number of orchestras. Um, you know, we have three concerts ahead of us. Um, 
And I wonder if you have any particular premonitions about, you know, how this one will feel or, or you know, how, how things will go. Uh, right. Well, that's the beauty of the subconscious and the, and the conscious, because I may have an idea of how a cadenza is going to start, but I really have no clue how it's going to end or where <laughs> it's going to go. Yeah. And I try very hard to literally allow the music to move through me, almost like a recording that's taking place spontaneously. Mm -hmm. And I have to hear what should that recording sound like. And i give you an example. If we think of Beethoven, right, who's uh, perhaps he wasn't the greatest writer of melody, perhaps he wasn't the greatest orchestrator like Ravel or Rimsky-Korsakov, but when you hear any of his works, they're perfect. Hmm. And they have, I think what Leonard Bernstein called the sound of inevitability, meaning that, uh, well, look, for, right? <laughs> that's, you know what I mean? Like when you hear that, that's all that could have been. Like it couldn't have been anything else, mm -hmm. right? So every note that follows every other note, like, he may have struggled with it, and, I, and my understanding is that he did, you know, he wasn't one of these people who just wrote and it just flowed right out. And he was, no, there'd be nine versions of these eight bars. Mm -hmm. And finally, he got what he wanted. And when he got what he wanted, when you would listen to it, it couldn't have been anything else. So for me, when I improvise, that's what I'm, that's what I'm looking for. I'm, I'm hoping for some moments where what I play, it had to be that. Mm -hmm. The only thing is I'm making it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And of course, uh, you know, and, and, and the other big thing that I want to get people to understand is that the rhythm section, right? That's the foundation of all American music, right? Everything. Yeah. I don't care what you, rock and roll, hip hop, it, it doesn't matter. Um, the rhythm section, meaning a piano or keyboard, an electric or acoustic bass, and a guitar or a set of drums, Okay. That sound is the soundtrack of 20th century American life. And um, what's important about that is, so we're making up stuff underneath an orchestra that's playing written music, which means that we're literally responding subconsciously to them as a group, mm -hmm. not, not one individual. Now, everybody's doing it. And that's why it's different every time, because no two musicians are going to have the same exact idea all the time. Like, we're all responding in our own special way. And again, it represents what we want in our American dialogue, mm -hmm. which is that somehow we have to get to the point where we're not just disagreeing, but we're actually listening to opposing views, different points of views, right? And we have that sense of wanting to protect everyone's dignity and sense of wanting cooperation from other people. Because in jazz music, without that, we simply cannot play. Yeah. Like if we, if, if we can't agree to have real true respect, a cooperative approach, a, a project that is unity-based, unified-based, right? If we can't agree on that, it is not possible for us to improvise with any real um, 
substance. Yeah. Well, we are in 2024. It is an election year. <laughs> and, it is. And, Indeed uh, it is. You yes, know, it is. if only the um, the body politic would look to the example that you're describing and setting, uh, I think everyone would be in a much, much better yeah, place. I think so. I think culture, I think music is, my argument has always been that everybody should play music just like everybody should play sports when, when they're a child, mm -hmm. regardless of talent level regardless of ability level, because I really believe that it's another way to teach teamwork. It's, it's, it's another way to teach daily discipline, right? It's, it's, it's a way to teach math. It's, it's, I mean, there's so much in music that, um, first of all, it just sounds good. And I think, you know, you play for your family, or you play for your friends, or you play for everybody at school. It builds self-worth and self-esteem. I, I know it did for me. Yeah. So I, I would argue that to take music out of the schools, I never understood it. Right, right. You have had the experience of composing music and and you know waiting for its premiere and having that that you know that momentous occasion where it first gets played in front of an audience. Right. Um, if you sort of put yourself in Gershwin's shoes, uh, you know, let's say February eleventh, nineteen twenty four. Right. You know, he's he's. Uh, been working hard on this piece. He had a very short amount of time to to put it together. His orchestrator, Ferde Grofay, has you know um, fleshed it out with this you know this score. Skipping ahead a century, what do you think would surprise him most about the life that this piece has had and the way that we're talking about it today? I think the fact that he would look on the stage and see a set of drums and <laughs> see a bass player and a, and a, and a piano, um, the fact that there would be video cameras filming it, the fact that somebody would post something about it on social media right as it was starting, I think he'd be like, what is going on? <laughs> but he'd be cool with it. You know, he, yeah. He'd be cool with it. I don't think he would have a problem with it. He was a progressive thinker. Mm -hmm. He was somebody who always was pushing for that next thing, that next thing, you know. And I think he would be thrilled with what's happening with the piece. The fact that so many people love it, so many people play it, and that there's still an audience who wants to hear it and who are open to these new ways of exploring it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you are on the piano. Well, so. thank you so much. <laughs> I appreciate that. When you first recorded and released this work in the mid '90s, um, classical institutions were, you know, beginning to warm to the idea of of bringing in um, musicians who improvise, you know, musicians coming from the jazz tradition. And I feel like we're in a much different place now. Oh yeah. Um, you know, can you speak to that evolution and, and how you feel about it? Well, I think it's great. I think that, look, jazz and classical music need each other. There's no reason for these two worlds to not coexist. It, it's ridiculous that they're separate. You know, it's it's just as ridiculous as the separatism that happened in the United States between black and white people. It, it makes no sense. Mm -hmm. Um it doesn't mean that there aren't different cultural points of view between each music, but that's the thing. That's what makes bringing them together very special. And um, for me, the person who really championed me in my work and, and my vision with this was Seiji Ozawa. He, he really uh, pushed me and said that we need more works that represent 
a collaborative approach between jazz and classical music. Mm -hmm. So after doing Rhapsody in Blue, I, you know, then I did Concerto in F with him and we did it in Japan and we did it with the Berlin Philharmonic. I mean, he was always a very strong proponent of my work. And then he encouraged me to write, you know, another piano concerto in 2016, which I did. So I think he understood that styles were changing as much as people love Beethoven's music and, you know, the music of Wagner and all that they do, but you've got to also, you got to play some things that really do represent right now. I think we have to think of even this piece, Raps in Blue, and not so much think of 1924, but yeah, think of 2024. Think of mm -hmm. uh, what what can a person do with this piece today if they hear it, yeah. right? And that's my goal is to give people something. They can decide what they want to do with it, but make it clear that it's for you and it's about you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much, Marcus. Marcus is just a wealth of information and just his touch and sound, my God. He's really generous with his insights, and, uh, and it was a, an honor, truly, to have him here and to talk about this work and what he brings to its interpretation. I think he's a vital intervention, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> good word, good word. If you go to our YouTube page, the WRTI YouTube page, you can see uh, your chat with Marcus there, and also on our um, Instagram and the website. That's right, WRTI.org. Um, so please do, and, uh, and feel free to leave a comment there, if you, uh, especially if you like what Marcus is, is laying down. Speaking of comments, we haven't said this in a while, but the late set would love your feedback. Sure. We would especially love it if it's very good feedback. <laughs> <laughs> you know, those five-star ratings are, are, uh, are really valuable to our show. And we also encourage you to share the late set with friends and family. Uh, let people know we want to we want to keep this party going, and we want to keep uh, increasing the numbers. So please, you know, we're a member-supported station. WRTI is, and we thrive on uh, the generosity of our members. So if you're not yet a WRTI member and you dig the late set, really quickly go to wrti.org, click donate now and come on into the family. Tell them Greg and Nate sent you. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you all for listening to this Late Set bonus episode. We are going to be doing more of these off-schedule drops in the future, so look out for that. Our next proper episode is coming just next week, and we are very excited about it because we sat down in person with the legendary Gary Bartz. What I wanted was a band that could play anywhere. That's why we didn't have a piano, because you can't take a piano in the jungle. You know, you can't take a piano into the bush. The Late Set is a production of WRTI and made possible by WRTI members. 
It's hosted by me, Nate Chenin, and Greg Bryant. The show is produced by Alex Arif. Production assistance today from Melanie Spiegel and Kayla John. Special thanks to Stephanie Williams and the Philadelphia Orchestra. If you want to hear Marcus Roberts with Jason Marcellus and bassist Marty Jaffe Rocket with the Philly Orchestra, tune in to WRTI for our program, the Philadelphia Orchestra in Concert. That version of Rhapsody in Blue is there. You can't hear it anywhere else. Sunday, May 5th, 1 p.m. WRTI's operations manager is Joe Patty, and assistant director of production is Tyler McClure. Associate general manager for content and programming is Josh Jackson. And Bill Johnson is WRTI's general manager. Stop by WRTI.org to see everything else that's happening here in Philadelphia and beyond. We will see you soon.